Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Doxology. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Betsy, and I'm a member here, and tonight I will be reading our sermon scripture passage. Um, This evening we'll be reading from James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. So I invite you to turn there in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to grab um, one from the back of the pew in front of you. And if you need a Bible um, to take home with you, we do have some blue Bibles in the lobby um, on our welcome table that you can take as our gift to you. But the black ones, um, just use those for during the service and then put them back when you're done. So um, once again, we will be reading from James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until he receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who have remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is God's word. Thank you, Betsy. Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you. And for those of you who are new, a warm welcome to you. My name is Steve, and I'm really glad that you're with us this evening. Uh, So as you could tell throughout the service, we are beginning Advent tonight. And Advent means arrival. This is a season that we celebrate with churches all over the globe. And you may have been wondering as we were reading the scripture passage, you know, why am I not hearing the things that give me the fuzzy feels, you know, like the wise men and the nativity scene and all those kinds of things. And that's because traditionally the church has begun Advent by looking not at the first coming of Jesus, but at the second coming of Jesus. That's why here in verse 7 it says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And this coming of the Lord here refers to what Jesus taught his disciples, and James would have been there as Jesus taught them this, um, when Jesus was referring to when he will return a second time and usher in something called the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, it's something that every single human being longs for, whether you recognize it or not. So we live in a secular age, right, a culture which defines right and wrong and meaning in life without any reference to the transcendent. Yet despite living in a secular age, the sense of wonder, the sense of that life has to be more than the sum of its material parts, it can't help but continue to squeeze through, you know, even in people who say they're not religious. And one of the places you see this most often is in the arts. And uh, just this past week, I was reading some interviews with the band Fleet Foxes, that indie folk band, and if you've listened to their music, uh, there's often these, like, spiritual or religious undertones, you know, to their music, and so they were asked by an interviewer, uh, you know, are you guys religious? And what they said is, no, we're not, uh, but we firmly believe that everybody has a transcendence impulse, uh, is the phrase that they use, and, and they said, you know, if there's going to be an objective to music— We think that aiming for transcendence is what music is meant to do, and that's what we try to do in our music. And so there's one of their songs that they they wrote. uh, It's pretty well known. You guys may have listened to it. It's called Helplessness Blues, and it's essentially a journey about the singer trying to find meaning in life, and he tries it through, you know, self-actualization projects. He tries it through inserting himself into a cause bigger than himself, and then at one point in the song, he says, 
If I only knew one thing, it's that everything I see of the world outside is so inconceivable, often I I barely can speak. I.e., there must be something more to the material world. Meaning in life must be found in something more than some kind of self-actualization project. And then toward the end of the song, the music shifts, essentially announcing the conclusion of the song, and listen slash, you know, read what they sing. So he says, if I had an orchard, I'd work till I'm raw. If I had an orchard, I'd work till I'm sore. And so here's, here's what they're saying is they're describing the ideal external world, right? It's analog, not virtual. It's filled with smells and things you can feel. And it's idyllic and rustic. And, you know, you can work with your hands without, you know, being immersed in Twitter outrage or trolls coming at you. Right, this is the ideal external world. And then he continues, and you would wait tables and soon run the store, gold hair in the sunlight, my light in the dawn. And here what they're describing is the ideal society. So it's not just the ideal external world I'm a part of, right, but the relationships I'm in are those that are most meaningful to me. And these relationships aren't combative, they're not argumentative, but we support one another. There's a companionship about the work that we do together. And then the song concludes on this final line, someday I'll be like the man on the screen. Now, what this could mean is, you know, there's an irony here because actually he ends up just falling prey to what society tells him he should be doing for the good life. But that's not the interpretation that fits with this sermon illustration. So I'm going to go with a different (laughs) interpretation. And I think, and here's, I'm drawing on someone who's analyzing this, uh, a good article I was reading it. So I think what's going on here is he's, he's, he's described the ideal world, the ideal society, Now he's describing the ideal self, right? Because the person, especially in these idyllic shows and these people that you look up to, you know, on the screen or online, there are people who they know what they want to do and they do it. You know, wouldn't that be nice to know what you want to do and then actually have the ability to carry it out? And so note the picture they've painted here, okay? The ideal world, the ideal society, and the ideal self. That's the kingdom of God, with a key omission, you need the king, right? We, we can't have the kingdom without the king Jesus. But what fleet foxes are doing is they, are, they sing spiritual songs, and Jesus is what they're looking for. You know, Jesus is the fulfillment of fleet foxes' songs. And what the promise of Jesus is, is like these longings, you know, your ideal world might not look like an apple orchard and, you know, your best friends with golden hair in the sunlight and so forth, but we all have a fantasy of what our ideal life looks like, right? And that is fulfilled in Jesus. And what Jesus says is, because of who I am, if you're in union with me, this is not a fantasy, but the ideal will become real when I come to renew all things. And so what we're, what we're looking at this Advent season is people who have this astounding promise that no one else offers, like this is coming, this should affect how we live today. And so that's what we're looking at this evidence. So that's why this series is called Anticipating the Kingdom. And, you know, so uh, Alyssa and Leo, they recently got married. It was, it, was a great, it was a great wedding. And, you know, one of the things that I was noticing as I was watching them, you know, Kelsey and I were walking with them doing premarital counseling and so forth leading up to their wedding is most of their energies, if not all, were directed toward their wedding day and toward, you know, joining their lives together and moving in with one another and so forth. And all their friends knew they were getting married, as should happen when you're coming up to a wedding day. 
And the thing is, if the kingdom of God is coming, right, that, that as special as a vacation is or as special as a wedding is, it should be so clear to the watching world that we are marked by anticipation of this coming kingdom even more clearly than when you see two people getting married. You see they're rearranging their plans and their emotions are dictated right by that coming day. And so that's what we're going to learn as a church on how to do, like, how do we live as people marked by anticipation for this coming kingdom? So much so that people who aren't believers would say, like, there's something different about you. And so what we're going to start with today is the first ingredient we need as we wait for this kingdom outside of Jesus is patience. Okay, so by definition, we can't wait for the kingdom well if we don't have patience. Uh, So let's look at what James teaches us about patience under these two lines. First, we'll see what patience is. And then number two, how to develop it. Okay, so first, what patience is, and then second, how do we develop patience so that we can anticipate slash wait for the kingdom well. And you see in verse 7 and 8, he uses the word patient multiple times. And then he moves in, in verse 10, he moves into, or sorry, verse 11. He uses a different form of the word patience. Verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. And you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. So that word steadfast there in Greek, it's hupomeno, is how you pronounce it. And the word means long-standing, right? So to be long-standing, no matter how many disappointments, no matter how many delays hit you across the face, you keep standing, you don't wither, you don't melt down, you, can, you continue, and not in a cold, detached, calloused way, but in a gracious way, because you remember at the end of verse 11, the Lord is compassionate and merciful, So how we can sum up patience, you know, a lot of ways you could sum it up, but one way that may be helpful is a gracious constancy amid disappointment and trial, right? Each part of that definition is crucial. A gracious constancy amid disappointment and trial. So its opposite would be irritation, self-pity, complaining. Those are all symptoms of impatience in our lives. And as we look at how to, how to develop patience, it's worth noting why it's so crucial that we do. And the reason why it's so necessary we develop patience is first because the most valuable things in life can only come to us when we exercise patience. So think about, you know, rich friendships. One of the reasons why I think we're, we have this loneliness epidemic in our nation is because we live in this contradiction where all of us desire connection. That much is clear. But at the same time, so few of us are willing to put in the time and the sacrifice and the willingness to be corrected by other people that's necessary for rich relationships to take place. Like, you can't form a deep, meaningful relationship when you move every couple years or when most of your interactions are on social media or if you're living in a Volkswagen van, you know, taking pictures out the back for Instagram. Like, you just, you can't develop meaningful relationships that way. And it's the same for, like, anything really good in life. So deep relationships, you know, real wisdom, long-standingness under suffering. These things can't happen without patience. You can't be a person who can really help other people without patience. I mean, if, if you think about the people who have impacted you the most in your life for the better, probably with most of them, they were people who exercised a lot of patience toward you. And as I think about, you know, even my own um, time in pastoral ministry so far, some of my deepest regrets when it's come to helping people, uh, you guys in our church, are the moments where I haven't exercised patience 
toward people. And so if, if we want to be of, of real help to other people, we need to be patient people. And yet at the same time, you know, while ancient cultures cultivated patience as a virtue, we live in a culture that encourages its opposite. Okay, so you're a liab, most of you probably feel like a liability in your company if you walk in the slow lane rather than running in the fast lane. Jeff Bezos is a billionaire because you and I are impatient people. I mean, he said early in his career, he said, you know, no one is ever going to want their packages to arrive more slowly than quicker. So Amazon's always going to get things to people faster than the competition. And he's right. He's exactly right. And so we need patience, yet everything about our lives conditions us to be impatient. So how do we develop patience? And James helps us out here. So how do we develop patience? Uh, A few things. And the first thing he shows us is we need to perceive hidden opportunities in our lives. There's things that happen to us nearly every day that look like annoyances or obstacles when in reality they are opportunities God gives us to develop patience. And what's the first thing he says? Uh, Let's see, second half of verse 7. So be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. So we'll call this first opportunity to develop patience life stuff. So the readers of James, they would have been as familiar with farming as you and I are familiar with email. It was just a part of their lives. Either they or their friends did it. And you think about farming, and you work really hard. You, know, you, you dig stuff, you plant stuff, but then eventually you what? You, just, you have to wait. You have to wait for the rain to come, and there is zero control you have over the weather. And sometimes the rain comes exactly when you want it to, and sometimes it doesn't come when you want it to. And that, that creates trouble for you. And this was the life of a farmer. So we're calling this first opportunity life stuff. Because you can work so hard in your career, and yet it doesn't pan out how you hoped it would. You can work so hard to try to keep a relationship intact, or to pursue a spouse, or to raise a child well, and things don't end up how you hoped. And what that is, is an opportunity to exercise patience and be long-standing rather than melting down. Uh, there was, an, exor- there was a, an article that came out about five years ago or so in Psychology Today, and they were talking about how on college campuses there's an increased number of students that are, you know, coming for, for counseling and medication for anxiety and depression and so forth. And, you know, part of this, and, and probably a fair amount, could be explained by just mental health in general is less stigmatized than it used to be. So maybe kids are just more willing to go seek help and we're more aware of it. But um, the article's talking about this, you know, increased fragility among younger, younger generations. And while maybe the conclusion is slightly overblown, I think at least in part, younger generations, and I include myself and us, probably are less resilient than generations prior. And uh, they said this in the article toward the beginning. <clears throat> they say, lacking emotional regulation and bred on the immediacy of having needs meant, there's no psychic middle ground frustration catapults into crisis. Okay, so you hear that there's no psychic middle ground. Frustration catapults into crisis. So here's joy, peace, happiness. A little bit of frustration comes along, and boom, you catapult into meltdown. You know, catapult into depression or anxiety. 
And someone pointed out that what's that psychic middle ground that we seem to be lacking? It used to be called patience. Right? Hardship comes along and you maintain it. It doesn't like anxiety may still come, right? A lot of those feelings we can't help. But underneath that, there's a gracious constancy amid disappointment and trial. And so when, when life stuff happens, the opportunity God gives us is to cultivate this key trait of patience, right, so that we can live well as those in union with Jesus. And so that's the first thing. Life stuff is an opportunity to cultivate patience. Uh, number two, what does James show us? He says in verse 9, don't grumble against one another, brothers. Say so to talking about our relationships with other people. And then he says in verse 11, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Now, when you think about Job, if you're familiar with Job's life, in chapters 1 and 2, he loses his health, he loses his family, he loses his money. Okay? Insane hardship. And that's often what we think about when we, when we talk about Job's hardship, and that's true. But Job doesn't, start, Job doesn't stop after chapter 2. It continues, like for over, well over 35 more chapters. And what you read about in chapters 3 to 37 is what's the main source of Job's suffering during those chapters? It's his friends for 35 chapters. Like, if you want to build up your, rep- your repertoire of savage put-downs for, for people who annoy you, like, read those chapters of Job. Like, it's unbelievable. And I think what's so helpful there is Job is recognizing that often people— and maybe most often the people who are closest to us can be some of the, the greatest causes, you know, of our pain and, our, and of our frustration. And just like when it comes to life stuff, there can be this temptation of hardship comes along, we catapult over, you know, that middle ground right into crisis. There's a relational version of that, right, where there's relational harmony and then suddenly somebody betrays your trust you know, somebody says something they shouldn't have. Somebody doesn't give you something that, that, they, that they owe you. And instead of bearing with them, instead of being, here I'm not talking about situations of abuse. I'm just talking about like the normal day-to-day annoyances of living with people, right? And what do we do? Instead of bearing with them, forgiving them, extending patience, we catapult into anger, bitterness, putting up walls, withdrawing. And so I'm sure each and every one of you, you have people in your lives who are annoying, who aren't operating according to your timetable in some way, shape, or form. And so rather than seeing them just as a hindrance to being happy, you know, what it could be is God giving you an opportunity to actually grow in patience and extend forbearance toward them and warmth toward them as much as is possible on your part just as Christ continues to do with us. So we have, we have life stuff, we have people stuff, and then number three, what's this third hidden opportunity that we see to develop patience? And that's suffering. So we see verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And when you read the prophets, I mean, these were faithful individuals but yet every single one of them suffered. I mean, you look at Jeremiah alone, he was betrayed by his own family. He was beaten, he was thrown into a prison, he was thrown into a cistern. 
I don't know what that's all about, but it can't be, can't be fun. And what the authors, what James is doing here is, I, I think this is, it's so helpful to know that there's never a promise from Jesus that when we follow him, we'll be exempt from suffering. And in fact, as we look at the tra- trajectory of Christ's people, when we look at the Savior that we're in union with, who's a suffering servant, suffering is actually the norm of our lives until God comes to renew all things. And so while it doesn't make things any easier, there can be something helpful and comforting to know that it's not new when we experience relational suffering, you know, or physical suffering. And the reason why it's an opportunity is because in the beginning of James, James starts off James by saying, consider it a joy when suffering and trials comes. You don't rejoice for the suffering. Now, we're not called to be masochists and rejoice for the suffering. But he says, consider it a joy because in the suffering, if you let him, God will use it to make you a more whole person. Because and I know there are a number of you who I've, who I've talked with even just over the, the past year where you've gone through suffering and you're now a less angry person. You're now able, you're a more compassionate person. You're able to help others more. You're more patient. Because there are things that God can only do in suffering that just can't happen in our lives when we're living Instagrammable lives. And so when suffering comes, as hard as it is, and, you know, we'll get to crying out in our pains in just a second here, but also we we need to see it as an opportunity to become more whole and complete people. Okay, so this is the first way we develop patience is we see these hidden opportunities that they look like burdens, and they may be, but they're, a- they're also opportunities to develop patience. So number two, what do we see? How do we develop patience? And we're going to look at Job here again. So verse 11, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So Job is commended as, as being steadfast, and when you think about the book of Job and you ask the question, was Job, stead, was Job steadfast in suffering? And the answer is, kind of? <laughs> it's like, Job, he wails, he yells, he doubts, he curses the day God made him. And yet God still commends Job at the end. And this is the key. The reason why Job is still commended as being steadfast is because while he flailed, while he yelled, he did these things to God. He didn't withdraw from God. He didn't withdraw from his community. He didn't become the the perennial grouch at discipleship group. He processed these pains to the Lord. And it's because he did that that he he was able to begin to see the world more clearly his heart became more aligned with God. And there's this amazing part, and while he's still in the midst of his suffering, in Job 23, verses 8 through 10, he says, I don't perceive God. You know, on the left hand, he's working, but I don't behold him. In other words, I have no idea why God's allowing this to happen to me. But then he says in the end of verse 10, in verse 10, he says, but God knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. He was saying, I don't know what God's up to, but I know he's for me, he knows me, and when this is over, somehow I'm going to be someone great. And that's exactly what happened with him. And so it can be for you. 
And so as we talk about patience here, you know, this, this gracious constancy and then, you know, disappointment and trial, it's not putting on a fake smile. It's not, you know, this callous stoicism. We need to bring our wails and our angers and our hard disappointments to the Lord. And when he has tested us, we will come out as gold as well. Okay, and then finally, number, number three, what do we see in terms of how do we develop patience? We are to look to the future as we remember the past. Okay, we look to the future as we remember the past. And so we see this in the bookends of this section. So you see, he begins, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, looking to the future. And then the end, verse 11, we know the Lord's compassionate and merciful. And here he is drawing on the Lord's acts in the past. That's why he knows God is compassionate and merciful. And I imagine for James writing this, this was very personal to James. And it it becomes charged with with meaning when you think about James waiting for the coming of the Lord and his past compassion and mercy. Because think about, so James is none other than James, the brother of Jesus. Not his brother from another mother, but brother from the same mother. He was the brother of Jesus. And you can see these, these records in the gospel accounts. As Jesus begins his ministry, James mocks Jesus. James doesn't trust Jesus because Jesus is claiming to be God. I mean, if I love my older brothers, but if they claim to be God, I would mock them, and then I would put distance between myself and them. Okay, so James is mocking him. He's not trusting him, and then something happens where James goes from ridiculing Jesus to eventually, and you can read about it in Acts, James becomes martyred for Jesus. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the author is encouraging us to run the race with endurance, with patience, as we look to the founder and perfecter of our faith, Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And that word that Hebrews used for endures the cross is the same word in, he, in James 5 for steadfast, hupameno, long-standing. Jesus Christ, no matter how many times he was beat on, no matter, how many, no matter how many times he was spit on, no matter how many times he was whipped, was long standing. He showed a gracious constancy, not responding kind for kind. That was well within his power to do. But long standing, and it's the patience of Jesus that gave James life eternal. And this changed James. And so may it be for us because the patience of Jesus is why you can be a child of God. It's the patience of Jesus that is the reason why we have a church family. The patience of Jesus gives you a promise all of your pains will one day become glorious. And it's because of the patience of Jesus that our life won't be this unending repeat of singing Fleet Foxes songs followed by dying into nothingness. It's the patience of Jesus why we're going to be brought to glory. And so when you when this comes into your heart and you see Jesus' long-standingness for you, 
Here's what it does for us as we wait for the coming of the Lord. First, it does make us happier and better able to love others in the present. Because when we know that the deepest longings of our hearts aren't going to be fulfilled into the second advent of Jesus, we know that no job, no career path, no relationship, no person, no tiny home in Wyoming where you raise farm-raised chickens is going to lead to the fulfillment that you're looking for. And because of that, we can stop placing a weight and an expectation on jobs and relationships and dreams that they are not meant to bear, which makes us more other-centered for other people because we're not constantly being let down by our own expectations of what we think we deserve. But number two, does this make us passive because we know, okay, well, you know, our deepest dreams aren't going to be fulfilled until the second advent? No. Because what we, what we know here is when, when we know that all the best things here are signposts for what's to come, what this means is now, so we ask the questions, right? So what's the point of feasting with family and friends during this Christmas season if I know that that's not going to give me the re- relational joy I'm looking for? And the point is because it points you to the feast that's coming where our joy is fully realized. Okay, what's the point of doing things like caring for Afghan refugees and foster children through the mercy ministry that we have going here at Doxology? Because there's always going to be poverty. There's always going to be injustice until the Lord returns. But we do it because it's a way to invest in the kingdom of God and provide others a picture, most of all the people that we're helping, of the type of king that we're in union with. What's the point of committing to a church when no church checks off all the boxes I want when it comes to a church family? Because the the church is a picture of how God loves a messy, in-process, broken people. And we get to be a part of it. It's, It's a foretaste of that ideal society that will finally come. And so the offer to everybody here, and if you're not a Christian, you know, Jesus offers you this gift purely by grace alone, not by anything you you do that through union with him, you can have this kingdom of God beginning now and then fully realize in the future. And for those of us who do know Jesus, the Lord of patience indwells us by his spirit. And so we can use these hidden opportunities to develop patience. We can process our pains in prayer at the throne of grace where we receive ever-present help in time of need. And then we can look to the future as we remember the past and live purposeful, joy-filled lives today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the Advent season, God. Um, And I know that this season is a mixed bag for a lot of people. And I pray for those who, um, some of the things that James 5 talks about when it comes to just the world we want or the relationship we have uh, can be hard-hitting because of the memories or realities it's bringing up. And I pray that you will Give them immense comfort um, through the people in this body and by your spirit ministering to them. And may the precious gift of Advent um, not erase the hardships because that doesn't happen, but give them a new story uh, within which they can process what's going on. And I pray for all of us, Lord, that we will be a people marked by anticipation of your kingdom and in an area where it's so hard to be patient. Uh, help us to develop patience for your namesake and for the good of others. And it's in Jesus' name.